Hello, and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, we're presenting a webinar about how to diagnose and correct your errors on logical reasoning. Seven Stage tutor Chris discusses ways that you can identify common mistakes in your analytics and how to address them. Then he and Seven Stage tutor Scott take questions from the audience. Well, everyone, good evening. My name is Scott Milam. I'm the manager of the Seven Sage Tutoring Program. Tonight, I'm joined by one of our fabulous tutors, Chris Wynn, who will be discussing how to diagnose errors in the logical reasoning section. So without further ado, Chris, take it away. Hi, good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming today. Just like what Scott said, today we'll be talking about diagnosing problems in the logical reasoning section. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Let's get started by asking the question why we should even diagnose our issues in the first place. I would consider issue diagnosis to actually be one of the most important steps in your studying process for the LSAT. And the reason why that is, is because it is crucial to know what you're doing wrong on this test. Because if you don't know what you're doing wrong, essentially, how are you going to fix it? This might sound obvious to some of you, but this is actually a huge issue, I think, for many LSAT students. Many of my students in particular sometimes just don't know why they're missing questions, or sometimes they think they know what's going on and why they're missing questions, but sometimes they're just way off the mark. So you want to make sure you're spending time on issue diagnosis because if you diagnose wrong as well, you're just going to be wasting time. For example, if you think you're getting questions wrong because of a question type misunderstanding, when really it has to do with your skipping strategy, you're going to be wasting time drilling problem sets when you should really be fine-tuning your test-taking strategy and your skipping strategy. So you want to make sure you're spending enough time on diagnosing what's wrong so you're practicing what you actually need to practice and you're not banging your head against the wall wondering why you're not improving. Yeah. A lot of the frustration that I see with my clients, a lot of the frustration that I experienced when I was studying for the test comes down to this, that so often the time that we spend laboriously studying for this test, which is no matter how you slice it, it is going to be a time-consuming task to really aim for a top score. But so often we make it so much worse by focusing so much of our time on things that ultimately don't do anything to improve our score. I remember back when I was studying for the test, I was going six hours a day for an extended period of time. And now as a tutor who helps other people and does designs, drills, and all these things, I realized that at least a third or even a half of the time that I was spending studying for the test was ultimately wasted. It was stuff that was in no way going to actually help me improve on the test. So good diagnosis can do so many things for just making your time more efficient and honestly just cutting down a lot of the time that you'll need to study the LSAT. Absolutely. So today, hopefully, we'll be able to improve your skills on working a lot smarter and not harder. The ideal workflow that you should be going through when you're studying for the LSAT should kind of look something like this, especially when you're studying for the logical reasoning section. First, of course, you're going to attempt some questions, right, whether that be in drills, in PTs, or in individual sections. Second, of course, since we're all seven sages, we know the importance of blind reviewing on the blind reviewing the questions that you just did. And we're going to be talking about this a little bit more later on, but also sometimes even journaling your thought process during blind review as well. Third, you're going to review the question and specifically look at JY's explanations for the question and kind of compare it to what you did during blind review. And fourth, and here comes the important part, is you're going to make sure to figure out and diagnose your issues. Why did you get the question wrong? And what happened for you to get the question wrong? Then once you've diagnosed your issues and, and understand what your issues 
countries are, you're going to make sure to prescribe specific drills, whether that be LSAT problems or even grammar drills or skipping strategy drills. Take the drills to be more confident in the issue that you're having so it doesn't become an issue anymore. Finally, execute it under time conditions to see if you can execute it under a PT and, and you're not missing the question anymore because of that specific concept that you, you diagnosed. And then finally, after that, you're going to reevaluate and see if the drills that you were doing were helping you enough to execute this on a PT and then rinse and repeat and find the next issue of diagnosis that you need to find. And again, the reason why issue diagnosis is so important is because if you don't do it correctly, you're going to be prescribing wrong drills and taking wrong drills that are just gonna waste your time when you try to execute under time conditions and take a PT and you're scoring the same score that you scored last time. And again, that's exactly why diagnosing your issues is extremely important and something that you should be paying a lot of attention to. I think also something that makes issue diagnosis hard is sometimes we're just inherently bad at it. And I think Scott can definitely relate to this and I can absolutely relate to this when I I was studying as well. It's just sometimes it could be really easy and be like, oh, I just really need to drill flaw questions, right? But like for a lot of my prep, it also became much more than just, I need to drill flaw questions. So how can we get better at improving our diagnostic skills? So I think the best thing that you can do for yourself is collect as much data as possible about your habits and what you are doing and your thought process to be able to reflect on that later on. It's almost like you want to you want to like create a diary of sorts or like a journal basically. And journaling during when you're in your blind review step I think is really really crucial to collecting this data. And the reason why that is is because when you are in this blind review process, you're essentially blind to the correct answer, right? So what that means is you're going to write down in your journal what your thought process is to get to the correct answer, which might be different from JY's thought process when you finally figure out what JY is doing when you're done with blind review. But the reason why you should be journaling this instead of just like thinking it in your head is many, many times I've tried to, like when I didn't journal during blind review, I would try to like ask myself, wait, what, what was I thinking again when I was taking the test and it's just sometimes at that point it's just I have no idea and it's almost like wasted material that I could have been using to actually figure out what was going on and what the heck I was thinking during that time. So journaling during your blind review process is something that can be extremely helpful to figure out what your bad habits are and what you're doing that is different from what JY is doing. So a lot of our listeners have probably heard of wrong answer journaling before, but I know if they're like me back when I was taking the test, they might not have ever heard of journaling during blind review. So can you unpack that a little bit? What does that look like? What sort of questions would you be answering? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, you want to be asking yourself, what did I do under timed conditions here? First of all, why did I choose this answer choice? And I should have probably put this on the side as well, but it's more like, why did I choose this answer choice under time conditions? Those are the key words, under time conditions because that's what you want to be thinking about because that's what is going to enlighten yourself about what your thought process is and that's what you can compare to what JY is doing on his explanations to see where the gap in your understanding is and the flawed logic in your understanding is. 
Also, you want to make sure you're asking that same question about the answer choices you didn't choose. Why didn't I choose every other answer choice under time conditions? Because again, that can kind of enlighten you to understanding what your flawed logic is. Sometimes I would write down my explanations for when I'm journaling during blind review, and I would write down an explanation for why I didn't choose an answer choice. And it would be correct that I didn't choose it, but my reason for not choosing it would be wrong. So even that can be extremely helpful to understand because it might very well be the case that, yeah, you got lucky this time and you chose the, like you eliminated the correct answer choice this time, but maybe next time you won't get so lucky. So you really want to make sure that I think you're doing this so you can, again, collect that data and review as much as possible your habits and compare that to the correct habits that you're supposed to be doing. And why is it so important to do this during the VR process as opposed to trying to do it later on when you already know whether you got the answer right or wrong? Yeah, I have. And I don't know if you can, I'm pretty sure you can relate to this too, Scott, but it's just like, sometimes when I know what the right answer is already, it's very hard to understand what the heck happened when I didn't know what the right answer was. So journaling this when you don't know the right answer is super helpful in that aspect, because also like the human mind is just sometimes really rampant with biases and stuff like that. And this is exactly why I say to journal, because there are many times where I would think that I'm thinking things correctly. But when I try to write down my reasoning or explain it to like another LSAT studier or like like a study group that I used to study with or something like that, I would start to realize, oh, wait, I'm actually not saying what I'm supposed to be saying or like, oh, wait, I'm catching myself now. And, and that's essentially what journaling allows you to do. Yeah, it's a really good tool against self-deception, which is kind of like the, I mean, it, which is really the kryptonite of diagnostics. Our brains want to lie to us about why we got something right or wrong. And with my, I've managed a debate team for the past seven years, and I, as kids come out of a debate round, I always say there's one of two reactions. Either a kid comes out thinking that, well, I, I absolutely won that, and the only way I lost is if the judge is crooked, or kids come out thinking the exact opposite, that everything I did was wrong, there's no possible way I won. And neither of those reactions has really anything to do with how they actually performed, it has everything to do with their own innate biases and their own personality type and just the frame with which they look the world. And the same is true with the LSAT with clients. So often we come out of any of these questions with a, a particular frame that, again, has nothing to do with reality, nothing to do with how we embrace how we deal with these questions and everything to do with our innate biases. And that doesn't make us bad people, but it can make us terrible diagnosticians if we don't have some tool to control that bias and to identify it for us. Right. And journaling allows you to be much more self-honest with yourself and eliminate that particular bias. So yeah, when you're journaling, an example of something that is not so great blind review journaling is, oh, this answer choice is wrong just because it is. And again, here, you want to make sure to be a little bit more specific on why it's wrong and why you think it's wrong. So you can lean back on it if you need to, if it is, is bad reasoning or not. Something that would be a little bit better is like, especially if you're dealing with a comparative statement, B is wrong because we don't actually know if John is tall or not, only that John is taller than Alex, right? So like, and this is something that comes up many, many times over on logical reasoning questions where they test your specific understanding of what it means to be a, like what a sentence means when it is comparing something, right? When you say John is taller than Alex, you're not really saying that John is tall. It could be the case that Alex is four feet and John is four feet one inches. 
because of that, like this allows you to be more sensitive to those things. So like something that if you wrote in your wrong answer journal, B is right because John is tall. That could also like hint to you, oh, wait a second, maybe I need to be a little bit more sensitive and drill comparative statements more because for some reason, I'm not thinking of what a comparative statement is actually exactly supposed to be. That short a sentence is absolutely fine. We don't need paragraphs. I don't encourage you to spend huge amounts of time with this. BR is already incredibly time consuming, but even something as simple as that sentence can be such a good clue when you're looking back and trying to figure out what was I thinking when I chose this answer and thus gives you a clue to how to do better on the next take and the next iteration. Yeah, absolutely. I want to emphasize also that it's it's also sometimes okay to just say, I don't know, because there, there have been many times, especially when I'm dealing with a five-star question, that I am just oscillating between A and B, and I have read A 50 million times, and B 50 million times, and I just have no idea why one strengthens and one does not. So it's, it's just like, just say, I don't know. Of course, you don't want to use this as a cop-out of not blind reviewing in the first place, right? Definitely give it a good faith effort, but just saying, I don't know, and not even answering the question question during blind review could also just make yourself more self-honest with yourself and help you better understand, okay, what is it do I need to know here? Or what concept is it that I, I need to, again, be more sensitive to when I should be figuring out what to do under time conditions? So yeah, another thing to do also to collect as much data as, as possible is to also screen record your PT. Really be a good indicator and good data on specifically your test-taking strategy and your test-taking habits, how you're going through the test-taking process. Many times, I And again, this is where it's just like, you cannot lie to yourself when you have a PT and it's right in front of you and you said, oh, I skipped this question in 30 seconds when in actuality you spent like a minute 30 on the question or something like that. Or, oh, I eliminated all five answer choices here and I know I skipped the question after that. And again, like I, I go through this with my students many times over and we see that, oh yeah, you did eliminate all five answer choices here, but you went back and reread A and B and C and E, like screen record your practice test can really open your eyes to like what you're actually doing and saying, which can, again, be instrumental in helping you diagnose your issues. Yeah. And if you do this, by the way, I really recommend that you have the answer sheet in front of you as you're watching so that you can kind of play along because it's amazing the effect that it has when you realize, okay, well, I got this one wrong. The right answer is B. And then you watch on the screen as in the first 30 seconds, you cross out B and then waste the next minute and a half on one that you couldn't possibly get right because you crossed out the only right answer. And if that, that could be so instructive and so memorable in terms of identifying ways in which you waste time on questions that you ultimately were kind of doomed on. If you've never done this before and you're struggling with timing on the test, you have a high BR score and a lower actual score, I strongly encourage you to do this. It's such a helpful tool. We use it in tutoring so often. Please, please give it a shot if you haven't. Yeah, absolutely. And again, the principle behind these two things is you're collecting as much data as possible about your habits and your essentially your test taking habits to diagnose your issues and figure out drills that you can do to correct and replace those those bad habits with good habits. It's basically to see yourself in real time to screen recording your PT is, is essentially to make sure you're seeing yourself in real time to diagnose those habits.
We're going to segue into the types of specific errors that mainly happen in the logical reasoning section. The first type here is going to be reading or grammar errors. Because the LSAT loves to use complex grammar and convoluted complex topics all the time, it's really important that your reading skills are up to notch. If there are any errors in your reading, that's definitely something that you want to make sure to take a look at. The second one is your reasoning errors. And again, because this is the logical reasoning section, you want to make sure that you are taking a look at and trying to diagnose if there's anything wrong with your causal reasoning or your conditional logic, or if you're weakening a question, or sorry, not a question, but an argument correctly, or anything that has to do with argumentation. The third type of error that can happen is a question type error as well. If you're doing a most strongly supported question, not the way that you're supposed to be doing a most strongly supported question, or if you're treating like a strengthening question, like a sufficient assumption question or vice versa or something like that. Finally, the next type of error is going to be like a test taking error. And that has to deal with your specific test taking strategy when you're only given 35 minutes within a section. How are we using that time as efficiently as possible and not spending over three minutes on a question or making sure that we're skipping questions when we're supposed to be skipping them. And again, trying to get as many questions correct as possible within that 35 minute time constraint. Yeah. And it's important to note there that it's important to at least spend a little bit of time on that last one, even on questions that you get right. It's possible to get a question right and still make a significant error that ultimately costs you time and causes you to miss more questions down later on in the test. And I'm sure you'll talk about that here in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to walk through some types of examples of some things that could be going wrong in these specific four types of errors in RC. First, we're kind of going to kind of look at a, at a grammar example. So here we kind of have two sentences. I'm going to walk through these two sentences with you guys right now. But so the first sentence says a firefighter who performed an act that exceeded what could be reasonably expected of a firefighter. So stopping there, kind of basically like a, a firefighter who is going above and beyond in his job description, right? Should receive an award if the act saved someone's life. So here I made sure to highlight this part because this was actually the part of the diagnosis that kind of happened in one of my tutoring sessions, which is essentially referential phrasing, making sure that you're understanding what the act is referring to. It's referring to the specific act that's talked about here the act that exceeded what could be reasonably expected of a firefighter. So here, if you're understanding that you're struggling with referential phrasing, that's a specific diagnostic problem that could happen. Now, take a look at this sentence now, and let's read this sentence together now. It's almost the same thing, but there is one little tiny difference. A firefighter who performed an act that exceeded what could be reasonably expected of a firefighter. Again, it's the same thing going above and beyond his job description should receive an award if the firefighter also saved someone's life that year. And here, the difference essentially is that the concept of saving someone's life had to be a part of this act. Whereas here, saving someone's life didn't have to be a part of this act. And essentially, that was the diagnosis in that specific LR question, which was that we didn't understand the differences between the first and second sentence. Why did this act essentially have to be the same act versus this didn't? Again, kind of like being that using the steps that we talked about above about journaling during your blind review can allow you to kind of figure this out. If this was like answer choice A and this was like answer choice B and you're blind reviewing this and something that I would just write is like what like, huh, I think A and B mean the same thing. And that could really, I think, help you understand what to kind of diagnose there. 
So a question I often get from clients when they find a mistake like this, because I'm sure that everyone who's on this chat who has taken any number of PTs has definitely screwed this up on at least one section of the test. But so often what clients will do is they say, oh, well, I just misread it. And then that's just kind of the end of the discussion. And they don't kind of end with diagnosis. But how would you advise a client on how to drill to improve that? How do you get better at picking up these fine nuances? The first thing to do is to never just brush it off as, oh, it's just a misread. Even on Logic Games, when like that happens, or it's like, oh, I just uh, missed this one little rule or something like that. You always want to think it's a huge issue. The more you think it's a huge issue, the easier it is to essentially prescribe drills to be able to fix that issue and be more sensitive to that later on. So essentially, it's almost like you want to overcorrect what your habits are, because if you think about it, habits are just inherently really hard to kick off the curve, basically, because it's almost so ingrained in ourselves, especially if you're thinking that these two sentences mean the same thing. The prescription that I would give a student here would be to kind of write sentences yourself, kind of using the same grammar structure that's happening in these two sentences to to familiarize yourself and make yourself become much more sensitive to the differences between these two sentences. So you can essentially, again, be more sensitive to this type of grammatical structure. So later on, we can essentially, when you see this again under time conditions, you can get the question correct. So what other type of errors are there? The next one is kind of like a reasoning error that we're going to look at. Here we have, again, two sentences. The first one says, an act is wrong if the person who performed the act understands the difference between right and wrong. And again, I kind of highlighted the if here because we're kind of looking at conditional logic here. So maybe we can kind of diagram this as if the person who performed the act understands the difference between right and wrong, that act is wrong, right? So here, if we know that the person understands why the act is right and wrong, we can conclude that act specifically is wrong. Contrast that to the second sentence. An act is wrong only if the person who performed the act understands the difference between right and wrong. So here, it's very different. Essentially, you're, you're diagramming this as if an act is wrong, then the person understands the difference between right and wrong. Notice how up above, you actually can conclude if something is wrong or not. But here, if you're only given this statement, this conditional statement, there's no way you can conclude whether an act is wrong or right, because we're not given any conditions to know whether to be able to conclude that. By the way, a really helpful drill, assuming, of course, that you've gone through the core curriculum, you type one, type two, type three, type four indicator words. But if this is something you struggle with or something that takes a while for you, I would encourage you go back through old used LG sections or used LR sections and just go through it and only diagram these sorts of conditional statements. That can be a really good practice that doesn't burn up unused PPT material, even if you do it accurately, but it just takes you a long time or it takes you conscious thought. You really want to get to the point where recognize the difference between if and only if is absolutely instantaneous. And if it's not, then I would encourage you to do those drills. Absolutely. And something that I, I tell my students to ask when they do finally diagram this is what can you conclude? Can you conclude if something is wrong right now with using this statement? You can't. You can here. Kind of doing that with the specific conditional statements that you're writing down can be very, very helpful. And also just like ingraining that concept of conditional reasoning in your head. Another type of example that we're going to go over is question type error examples. So one of the biggest things or one of the most common things regarding question type that I see has to kind of deal with weakening and strengthening questions. 
when students like are going through a weakening question and they are trying to find an answer choice that makes the conclusion 100% false. But when in reality, all we're looking for is something that makes the argument a little less likely the case, even by 1%. And this is something I see many times over. So here with question type errors, of course, the drill is going to be drilling the specific question types. But I think adding on to that, knowing what you're supposed to drill to about that specific question type is also extremely helpful. So like, it's not just I'm going to drill weakened questions. It's I'm going to drill weakened questions and focus on making the conclusion only more or only less likely to be the case, not thinking about something that is 100% going to make the conclusion true or going to make the conclusion 100% false or not follow, basically. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point that as you drill question types, I mean, that's advice that almost everybody's heard before. But if all you're doing is just repeatedly looking at the same question types over and over again, that doesn't necessarily make you better. It's practicing a new procedure for addressing those question types that really helps you. So if you have a question type where you really struggle with it, come up with a process, a checklist, even if that's what it takes, and then go through and practice that checklist, especially on the harder type questions, the four star and the five star questions. But even I on some questions, types have to have kind of a mental list that I go down and practicing that mental list to where it becomes second nature, where you're not struggling to recall it in the middle of a high pressure test when you know time is kicking down. That's a really valuable place for drilling. Absolutely. And yeah, there have been many times where I have just drilled question types and just did the same thing over and over again. And in fact, that is actually counterproductive because you're, you're drilling the bad habits over and over again. And again, another example is with most strongly supported and must be true questions. Many times students are, are treating most strongly supported questions too much like must be true questions, whereas most strongly supported questions don't have to have that 100% validity that must be true questions have. So again, not just drilling must be true questions to just drill them, but to focus on being more towards the answer choice and the validity in the answer choices. Finally, the final kind of error that we'll be talking about today is test taking errors. So here you can kind of see that I put in bold that screen recording is definitely your friend here because you can't lie to a computer that recorded you. One very common error that I see with students is spending way too long on a question during their first pass of the question. And something that kind of happened very recently with a student that I had is that he specifically told me in our session that he didn't know what the conclusion was. And it was a weakening question that we were doing. And my question that I asked him, I essentially asked him, how are you going to weaken something that you don't know? In which case you, you can't, right? How are you going to make something less likely to be the case if you don't know what that thing actually is? But for some reason, we didn't stop there and kind of just skip the question. We went into the answer choices without even knowing exactly what the conclusion was. In this instance, the prescription kind of is under time conditions. If you can't confidently identify the conclusion, make sure to skip and fly the question. Many times, I know that we showed you four types of errors, but many times these errors are actually interconnected with each other. More than one thing can definitely be the issue with one question. So for example, going back to that test taking error that we just talked about, perhaps there was an issue with understanding complex arguments and understanding what is a sub-conclusion or major premise. So then your second prescription would kind of be type two that we talked about, which was your reasoning errors and reviewing arguments with sub-conclusions to practice that concept of support there. I know you have a few examples of some analytics results that help us to identify a few of these. Let's go ahead and jump into a few of those. And then in about five minutes or so, I'd like us to go ahead and take some questions from the audience because I, I can already tell from the Q&A and from the chat that we have quite a few people who want to ask some questions. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this one here is by Seven Sager Claire. I just want to talk about it a little bit right now, but Claire was kind of saying when she sent this form to me that she was kind of just started right just essentially kind of finished the core curriculum very recently. So, and she kind of expressed how she wasn't really still like getting the answer choices or, or like understanding what, what's going on sometimes in the questions. This is actually a place where I think blind review journaling would be extremely helpful, specifically like understanding where the, for question eight, for example, understanding why you thought E was right and why you didn't think A, B, C, and D were, or why you thought A, B, C, and D were wrong. And then again, comparing that and comparing your journal to like what JY is seeing or saying, you can really understand, wait, I'm thinking this, but I should be thinking this. Journaling during your binary review could be extremely helpful. Yeah. Another thing I'll point out in this, this is a very common pattern for people who are just coming out of the core curriculum. But you'll notice that she's really solid on the one and two star questions, a little iffy on three star questions, and misses almost all, I guess there aren't any five star, but all the four star questions. And that's not an uncommon pattern. But the thing I would encourage her to focus on, aim for those three star questions. That's the lowest hanging fruit on this. You can waste tons of time going after four or five star questions, but if this is what your analytics look like, those four or five star questions are still a few rungs up the ladder from where you currently are. Focus on the three-star questions. And once you start to master those, then you can turn your attention to the four-star questions. Otherwise, you kind of risk spreading yourself too thin and trying to get everything when really you want to focus just on the next easiest objective with each PT. Yeah, one crime at a time. This one here is by a seven stager Steve. So here, Steve was kind of saying in the form he sent me that if he was able to read the question without rushing, he usually has a good shot at getting them right. But it's like during time conditions when, and I can absolutely relate to this as well, like it's almost like sometimes when the clock is ticking, my brain just turns into a monkey and I just like read super, super fast and skim everything. But in that case, Steve, I would say to you, I don't know if you've heard the saying, slow is smooth and smooth is fast, but that really applies to the LSAT especially with reading. I think skimming on the LSAT and reading fast is actually the worst thing that you can do on this test. It's not about reading fast to go through the questions. It's about reading well. And the more that you are able to read well and better, ironically, also sometimes the faster you're going to get at doing questions because one, you don't have to reread. Two, you're much more confident when you're going into the answer choices. And three, you'll have a much better understanding of when you actually don't know something versus I just skimmed it and maybe I would know it if I reread it again or something like that. Another thing I see in this, and this is one of the most common trends for me to see in anybody's analytics on LR, but you can see that Steve is spending a considerable amount of time on the first 15 questions. He's routinely going over a minute on each one of those. And one of the things I really recommend to you, if your analytics look like this, is drill those first 15 questions. You really want to get the first 15 in about 15 minutes. Because honestly, even for me and Chris, people who tutor the LSAT, I look down at question 24, a minute and a half spent on a five-star PF question. I'm willing to bet I can't get that five-star PF question in a minute and a half, and I made a 180 on the LSAT. You're setting yourself up for failure if you're spending so much time on the front half of the exam that you don't have time to deal with the back half of the exam. So speed on those easy questions is just as important as accuracy on the harder ones. Absolutely. Here we have a screenshot by Pen Pineapple, seven stage pen. Here, we're getting a, a few answers wrong on our blind review, and that could be a few things here. Like one, it could be that we're kind of just rushing through blind review and we're not spending enough time that blind review process needs. We could be guessing and actually not knowing what the correct answer is, but just kind of like putting a something down just to put something down. Or three, we could be doing something different during our blind review process that we're not doing during our time process that's kind of messing us 
up and is a little counterproductive, which here I would also say like a good thing to do is to create that blind review journal to kind of, and that kind of almost solves kind of all three of these issues. You'll spend more time through the blind review process and you'll make sure that you're journaling and understanding what you did under time conditions as well. Yeah, there's one other error I want to point out here, and then I know we need to get to user questions. But number, it looks like eight. It's a little small on my screen. But it is a common thing that I see on a lot of people's analytics, what I call a long red tail. There are also long green tails, and they're both bad for the same reason. He picked the answer that he ultimately stuck with, and then he stayed with it for an entire minute or whatever. So those long tails are signs of wasted time. Anytime you see you've selected an answer, you stuck with it, and you didn't change the answer to something better, ultimately, that's time that you really could have moved on to another question. And maybe by you moving on to another question and you applying that time elsewhere in the exam, you might have been able to get it right. So if you're frequently seeing long green or long red tails on your analytics, that's an excellent place for you to identify, okay, that's time I wasted and that I should apply someplace else. Once I choose the answer, I should just go ahead and be moving on, especially in the first half of the exam. Yeah, I see those long tails a lot, specifically on like parallel flaw, parallel reasoning questions, but absolutely. Next one is by Seven Sager V. And here, I want y'all to notice we're spending a lot of time on these answers that we're inevitably getting wrong as well. And I'm highlighting them here, but like, for example, question six, question 16, 21, 22. And almost like comparatively, compare these questions to like questions that V is getting right, like question four and question five. It's almost like you can know when your question is hard for yourself if you're spending this much time on that, those types of questions. So like the thing I would say to, to V, it, it's most likely that what we need to do essentially is make sure to develop a timing strategy to be able to understand to skip these questions as soon as possible. So whatever, and this is where screen recording can be the best thing that you can do for yourself because it's like you can see almost where in question six where the right time or moment is that you should have skipped almost for example if you're able to if, if you see that a student is eliminating all five and skips the question there or, or sorry eliminates all five and then starts rereading where the exact moment that that student eliminates all five questions is is right all five answer choices is where you should have skipped that question I'm going to go ahead and throw in one more on this, and then we need to get to the audience questions. But something else I noticed with these analytics, the, a lot of the ones that she missed, essay, PF, parallel questions, flaw questions, a lot of these are ones that lend themselves to diagramming. And not only did she get them wrong, but also she took a long time to get them wrong. So that suggested to me that diagram drills might be really helpful to take some of those problem sets and go through and diagram them and really develop your fluency on that, because that'll help improve your accuracy on those questions. And it'll also, of course, improve your speed on them at the same time. So with that, if you have a question, and we'll probably go a little over time because I know we're running a little bit long here, but go ahead and throw your hand up. I will take them in the order that they appear to us. And then again, we will try to get to as many of these as we can. So I'm going to start here with Mina. Hi, can you hear me? We can. I was just wondering sometimes for like the heavier logic based questions, like the parallel flaw or sufficient assumption or must be true where it takes a lot of diagramming. Sometimes I don't know when I'm reading the stimulus, like what needs to be diagrammed and what doesn't. And sometimes I save time by reading through one of those questions and I don't need to diagram and I end up getting it right. But sometimes I don't. And I feel like I don't know when it's a good use of time to diagram and when it's not. Yeah, yeah, specifically with diagramming. I will diagram if I can't keep it all in my head at that moment. So if it's just like a like an if A to B to C, it's like, okay, yeah, that's simple enough for me not to diagram. 
But if it starts getting to like, if A to B, then B to C, then like B some F and then F most like F or G or something like that. At that moment, when it gets essentially too much for me to contain in my head, I will actually just go ahead and skip that question because diagramming just takes so much time sometimes on the real test that I don't want to spend that time on my round one, if that makes sense. So in actuality, I'm on my round one, I'm usually not diagramming, especially if I can contain it in my head. And then once it gets to that point, or that threshold where I can't contain it anymore, I'll tell myself, okay, I need to skip this question and kind of move on. Yeah, and I'll second that. Diagramming is absolutely critical, especially on some four and five star questions of specific question types. But if I'm reading a question thinking, I really need to diagram this to have a good shot of of getting it right, then that's an immediate flag and skip. Because even though I know I'm going to have enough time to address pretty much everything on any LR LR section that I've ever come across, that it's still going to stress me out to be diagrammed while the clock is ticking. I know I'm going to have just a much better time of getting to it if I can flag it, save it to the end, make sure I've gotten all of the easier, faster questions, and then applying those techniques. I'm much less stressed if I know I went through all the questions already. Okay, that was very helpful. Thank you. Of course. Oh, hello. hello. Thank Thank you for hosting this. I have a general question for how should we practice our questions. For example, is it like watching games? We just practice over and over again because I kind of just memorize the answers. I don't feel like I'm actively doing it. I think that's a good question. So I think fundamentally, LR is different than logic games in that respect. Practicing the same LR questions over and over again rarely gets you much. I think instead, journaling both during BR and after BR in a wrong answer journal, and really analyzing not just, oh, why did I get this one wrong, but really ask yourself, what's the process that's going to help me get these questions right in the future? I think that is absolutely key to to improving your accuracy and your speed on LR. Chris? Something also that I tell my students to do, because it kind of is, it doesn't really lend itself to foolproofing as much as LG does. But what you can kind of do to still familiarize yourself with the subjects is kind of creating your own LR questions that like have the same logic to it or creating your own answer choices that are wrong for the same reasons or something like that. It's almost like you're becoming the test taker and writing the trick answer choices yourself so you can be more sensitive to that when that comes up next time. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your question. Helen. Hi there. So I started the core curriculum about two months ago and I was just wondering, okay, so I did a practice test right before I started, obviously just as a cold diagnosis. And I'm wondering if I should be doing them regularly while taking the core curriculum. Yeah. What do you tell your clients, Chris? Yes and no. I guess it it, it kind of depends on like your specific, like where you are specifically. If it's like, oh, I've done a prep course in the past and I kind of have logical reasoning fundamentals already, I think it might serve you well to kind of take practice tests to kind of better diagnose your issues to understand where in the core curriculum you should be looking at. If you're fresh out of, if this is like your first ever introduction to the LSAT, I would lean on saying don't take practice tests until you're done after the core curriculum. Just because there are so many concepts in the core curriculum that you need to know before that are extremely helpful for when you actually take practice tests. If you're getting that kind of a frustrating feeling that like, oh, I I just want to take a PT, I would say maybe do like individual time sections of LR or something like that Mm. instead, especially if you're done with the LR section of the core curriculum. Yeah, I think that's fine to take individual sections of LR to get that urge of that you need to. But I would definitely refrain from taking full length PTs, especially 
especially if you're new and you're going through the core curriculum for the first time. You definitely want to save those, I think, for after the core curriculum. Yeah, something to remember is that they don't mint very many new PTs. So once you've run out, and there are strategies that we use for clients who have used every single possible PT. So it's not like things get hopeless at that point, but it does make it much more difficult to get an accurate read on your progress. So I always recommend, I, I like Chris's advice of taking timed sections as you go through the core curriculum rather than burning entire PTs. And that's what I would recommend to my clients as well. I did just want to share a couple of links in case you're sitting here and thinking, man, I would just really like to spend more time with guys like Scott and Chris. We have a couple of things here at Seven Sage that we can offer you. The first is a link I just shared, and that is we have now started live LSAT classes. These are classes of 16 students, and they're taught by tutors just like Chris, tutors just like me. In fact, the one that I just linked to you is Nick and Henry, who have both been on these webinars before. Henry is a 180 scorer, and he still has eight slots left in his class. So if you're looking for that, that's for 10 sessions for 500. And it's a great either refresher for those who have already finished the core curriculum or a great guide for those who are about halfway through or more of the core curriculum that it can really kind of, with a little bit more accountability and a little bit more structure, kind of guide you through the core concepts of how to study for the LSAT. And then, of course, the other link I just posted is if you want even more help than that, if you want that individualized attention, if you really want that strong accountability that comes from having a person like Chris who can work with you every single week, I would encourage you to take a look at our tutoring rates. Again, we have a really strong core of tutors here who are all familiar with Seven Sage, familiar with the core curriculum, familiar with the analytics. I would be absolutely happy to work with any one of you. So if either of those is useful, please feel free to look at those links. And of course, feel free to send me or Chris any questions that you have through the forums. So with that, let me go ahead and go to Isabella for our next question. Isabella. Hi, I had a question about the blind review. So I'm doing PTs every week. My test is coming up very soon. And I was just wondering to save time. I know like the qu the quality is obviously better to do the full test blind review. But if you wanted to save time, could you just do the wrong answers only and just blind review those? Would, would there be value to that? I guess I'm a little confused with your question, Isabella. So like you shouldn't be blind reviewing every single question on the LSAT. So if you're doing that, definitely I would I would say that's not as an efficient use of your time. But essentially when you're blind reviewing, you shouldn't know which questions you got right or wrong because that's essentially the concept of blind reviewing, right? So I would say blind review the questions that you flagged. That's what you should be blind reviewing. That will one, let you also know about any overconfidence errors that are happening on the test as well. Because if you're blind reviewing everything, it's a little hard to figure out which ones were you overconfident about. So to kind of save you time, I would say blind review the ones that you flagged. Make sure you're not blind reviewing everything. And I'll also just throw out that for everyone listening, everyone hates blind review. Yeah. Uh, I hated blind review. Yeah. I know Chris hated blind review. Yeah. I have never met anyone who just really enjoyed it. However, it is probably the single most important data point that we could possibly have into differentiating why exactly you're missing questions. Because the answer to the questions of did you miss a question because you didn't have time to get it right or because you simply didn't understand it well enough to get it right. And that is probably the single most important question we could ask because that breaks down into if timing is the issue, drilling is probably the thing that's going to help you. Whereas if knowledge is the issue, then going back and studying that question type or the core principles involved in it really is going to be the thing that helps you to improve on that. And because those are so radically different, it's probably the single, you know, not blind reviewing is probably the single greatest explanation for time waste when it comes to studying for the LSAT. Because so often we are studying when we should be drilling or drilling when we should be studying because we simply don't have that as to, to work as a guide. Great question. Let's see Tenzin. Hi, hi, Chris. I'm actually in Chris's live class. So just yes, um, yes. oh, fantastic, great, <laughs> and it's great, really helpful. Just a uh, live testimony here. My question is about the timer function during live 
actual test day. I feel like for RC and LG, it's easier to kind of break into chunks and gauge how fast or slow you're going. But for LR, I tend to lose a lot of time by compulsively checking the timer after each question. So I was wondering if there's a way to optimize the timer and, and the functionality of it so that you're not wasting time. So for me in particular, I get super distracted by that clock ticking down every single second. So I actually hide the time for most of the section. And it's like, because I have developed such a good skipping strategy that I trust, I'm not using, oh my gosh, I spent a minute and 40 seconds and two milliseconds on this question and I'm gonna skip it right now. I'm actually using like the actions that I'm taking to decide if I skip or not. Like for example, I eliminated all five here. I'm going to skip no matter what. Or I'm down to two answer choices here. I'm gonna give myself a shot to reread the two I'm down to, but if I read it once and I still can't resolve it, now I'm gonna skip. So it's like developing specific action points to take in your process. So you're trusting your process that will allow you to get to the end of the answer choices within a particular amount of time. I'd say I usually aim for around five minutes for my round two. But but also, yeah, sometimes I do get a little angsty and I do check the time every now and then. But I'd say I check it like at question 10, I check it. At question 15, I check it. At question 20, I check it. And at 25, I also check it. I think that's, by the way, a fantastic way to do it. And also, of course, check it at the end of round one when you're starting round two, because that tells you how much time you really have to go through and check your flags and help hopefully will help you prioritize which flags you are actually going to be able to get through and which ones are most important to do first. Thank you. That's super helpful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And then Harsha. Hey, so I've been going through the logic reasoning and I've been struggling with some of the harder ones. Where I struggle with is understanding how beyond the text to take it to. For example, I don't know if I can mention specific ones. I think you can just don't read the entire text of it or anything. Thanks. Yeah, of course. So there's one in logic and PT test 73 about salmon being introduced to a specific pond. And it's talking about and the answer choice talks about how it's like a beyond about science itself. And it's just I get confused about how far beyond the text you can take it in terms of bringing in science and bringing in different topics that you already know into it. And that's where I'm like, I don't want to make a choice based on that because I'm trying to stick to the text that where most questions are. So Harsha, I think and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're talking about what assumptions or reasonable assumptions that you can sometimes make versus what reasonable what assumptions that sometimes you can't make. Is that? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. This is the reason why I think weakening and strengthening questions are just extremely hard. Because to be fairly honest with you, I do not have an extensive list for you of like what the LSAT believes is a reasonable assumption and what the LSAT believes is not a reasonable assumption. So what I tell my students in this case, and for those four star, five star questions that you're doing, if you're ever down to two and you think both of the answer choices that you're down to both weaken, what you kind of want to ask yourself is which one essentially makes the least amount of assumptions. And I think that will get you more likely than not to the correct answer choice because I'm um, harsher probably for that question. Although answer choice A makes that assumption, I don't think you can probably argue that B through E make less assumptions or it's most likely the case that they make way more assumptions than does answer choice A. So kind of asking yourself that question, like which one makes the least amount? Like which one, how many roads do I have to take to have something to weaken is, is I think a really good indicator. I think that usually helps out, but this specific one was actually like, which one makes the most assumption? And that threw me off completely. So that's where I was just like, I usually most of the questions stick to it. And this one was just like completely like, okay, we're going into science deeply, like understanding the basics. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay, we're doing that now. 
All right, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think we can get through to Brian Miller. And after that, it's going to be the last question that we take for the night. So if you have other questions after that, please feel free to reach us on the forums. We'd be happy to do that. Yao Wan, I may be completely butchering that. Oh, hi, can you hear me? So I'm stuck in around minus six in each hour section, and I would make mistakes in almost any question types, and I would still miss most of them during blind review. So my question is, how can I improve my LR to minus three in each section? If that's the case, it's most, and you're saying that it doesn't have to really deal with question types. So like, if that's the case, what is most likely going to be the issue is, of course, now it's like something deeper than that. What I essentially mean by that is you want to look at whether or not it's a specific grammatical issue that's going on, or if it's something in your logical fundamentals that's going on. If you don't mind sharing, Xiaowan, are you an ESL student? Yes, I'm an international student. English is not my first language. I think this is a big problem with a lot of my ESL students as well. It is usually not actually the logic that's getting them. It's actually most likely like the grammatical issues. What I would say to you is that is probably a goldmine for like figuring out grammatical structures in English to be able to understand them and recognize those patterns. You can get those questions correct that deal with those specific grammatical concepts later on, whether those grammatical concepts deal with comparative statements or embedded clauses or anything like that, specifically knowing that. I think it's most likely what is going to help you in the long run. Does that make sense? Yeah, but should I keep drilling the question types right now or I, I just keep doing different PTs? What I would say actually is going to be the most helpful is identifying what those grammatical issues are. And if I were you, I would make my own sentences that deal with those grammatical issues. So you'll be able to recognize what they are saying later on. Now, if it's the case that all of your grammatical issues, you have resolved them all, then that's when I would start taking more PTs to like essentially do what you're doing, like find those other grammatical issues that you are having trouble with, identify them and, and rinse and repeat, do the same exact thing. Yeah, and I notice sometimes I would make grammar issues and sometimes it's more like I cannot notice, for example, the scope, the scope's shift, the, the subject shift, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Mm. I think those are similar and often related issues that you can kind of explore independently. But I really like Chris's emphasis on not just working on receptive knowledge, but actually practicing using the grammatical structures that you see on the test. Because often we can gain greater familiarity through creating our own sentences than just by repetitiously reading the same sentences over and over again. Thank you so much for your question. Yasmin, you're next. Yeah, my mic does work, I guess. So you can ignore. I was just wondering, in terms of validity, when it comes to those specific question types, how can you be more sensitive to the trap answers? I find like my issue is I, I get like so intent on the time and I'm like, I just want to get through the question. So I just skim by the catchers that I like my eyes should be drawn to. So sensitivity is a really big issue for me. So and I don't know how to improve. Like I, I know I'm supposed to be sensitive to certain words, but it's hard for me to, to train myself. Yeah, there was definitely a time when I was kind of the same way when I when I like knew I needed to be more sensitive. And I think this kind of has to do with it might have to do with two things. The first one is sometimes you just have to let yourself read carefully. And the way that I did that for me was to just hide the clock. So I didn't see it. And I just imagined that I was just in blind review. And that worked wonders for making sure that I was reading carefully and not rushing through the test. Secondly, it also just might it might be like that we just 
need more practice with those types of things. So again, I would kind of give you the same advice that I did to, I think, uh, Xiaowen, which is write down those specific things that you're not catching and write your own sentences with those specific nuances to really allow yourself to practice those things so that next time you see them, you will be able to practice them more. So like basically like personalize it to my understanding and then rinse and repeat. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot like working out. Treat it more like a sport, less like studying. All right. All right. Tracy now. Unmuting. Sorry. Hi. I have a question about sufficient assumption. I basically view it as an unstated premise. So a lot of times when I'm going through the stimulus, I'm looking for that unstated premise. Is this a bad habit that I've developed? And if so, can you better explain how I should tackle those types of questions? Because so far, those questions have been giving me the the most trouble. Yeah, it depends on what that unstated premise is, I think, because if you kind of think about it, strengthening questions as well, you're looking for an unstated premise to make the conclusion more likely to be the case. It's specifically that unstated premise that makes the conclusion true. I would edit what you're saying to, I'm looking for an unstated premise to make the conclusion true if you plug it into the argument. The way I kind of explain sufficient assumption questions to my to, to my students is, you're, in the answer choices, you're looking at, say, answer choice A, for example. Plug it in as a premise and ask yourself, does that make the conclusion true? If the answer is yes, that's the right answer. If the answer is no, then move on, basically. So it's like, plug it in. Does it make it valid? Does it make the argument valid? Does it make it so that if the premises are true, does it make the conclusion now true? I would add it's an unstated premise you're looking for that makes the conclusion true. Does that make more sense, Tracy? Yeah, that definitely helps. Great. How often are those question types? How often do they appear on, on the LSAT? Fairly often. Like... So, sufficient assumptions, one of the most common question types. You're right behind flaw, I think. And is there a big difference between that and necessary assumption? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. Again, that's why just saying unstated premise isn't kind of enough because for necessary assumptions, it's an unstated premise that the conclusion needs or requires. So make sure you're differentiating exactly. Yes, you're right, Tracy. You're looking for an unstated premise, but it's more than that. We're not including things that need to be there. Just for review right now, like a sufficient assumption will make the conclusion true. A necessary assumption is what the conclusion needs to be true. And to be clear, like a sufficient assumption could be a lot more than is absolutely needed to make the conclusion true. So you, you can actually have a pretty broad statement that's way excessive. It goes over the top. Whereas a necessary assumption has to be a very narrowly, like it, we need this in order for the conclusion to be true. The conclusion cannot be true except for this one thing. So you're looking for a much narrower gap filler, if you will, than you are in a sufficient assumption question. Thank you. That definitely helps to clarify things. Thank you. Good. We're so glad. Let's see. Miri? Hello, are you guys able to hear me? We can. I just had a quick question in terms of blind review. If I just finish the core curriculum and I'm just doing like LR sections, for example, should I, untimed is the key thing, should I be blind reviewing after if I'm doing it untimed or should I just be timing myself and then blind reviewing afterwards? I think, first of all, you want to ask yourself why you're doing the LR section on time. Like if you're if you're still working on the core curriculum, I think that's okay. But for the most part, the reason why it's very valuable is to practice under time conditions. Make sure that you're utilizing those very valuable practice tests and very limited practice tests to actually practice under time conditions. Yeah. So then I would also say that the ideal thing that you want to be doing is taking it under time conditions and then doing that blind review process. If you're just using it to 
drill various questions. I don't, I'm not sure how helpful that would be because it could be much more helpful to pinpoint specifically what your errors are and drill those question types. Yeah. And to jump in on that, part of the reason that I don't recommend outside of the very beginning stages when you're still in the core curriculum doing untimed material is because there are a lot of strategies that given infinite time would give you incredibly high accuracy on LR or LG or RC, but that ultimately are complete busts when it comes to actually dealing with them in the time test. I mean, like an obvious example would be on logic games, for instance. I mean, you could break the board out every single game out to a board of 16 different possibilities, and that would almost certainly net you the right answer. It it would take you a year to actually get through a time section, and it would ultimately train you in the skills that you need to address the questions in a timed manner. So I would say transitioning to timed as quickly as you can is really going to be ultimately beneficial. And then you also have blind review, and that's where the blind review comes in the value of giving you a chance, even with that, even untimed, even after the time has expired, to go back through and correct any mistakes that you can find. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Got it. So I would blind review even if I'm only drilling five questions at a time and use like and take that five question drill under time conditions, right? Just making sure I understand. Well, when you're drilling, so I guess it's it's a little different when you're taking timed sections versus when you're drilling. I think when you're drilling, I think it's okay sometimes to take it untimed just to go through the processes of what you're supposed to be going through and focusing specifically on what you need to focus on. For example, with Tracy just now, a good drill that she can do untimed at first would be to go through some sufficient assumption questions and go through the motions of thinking, okay, I'm looking for a premise that makes the conclusion true. So like you can practice that slowly and then build it up and apply it under like a time section take, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's a little different when you're doing like regular drills, I think. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, our pleasure. And then Megan, you're next. Hi, I had a question about going through the core curriculum. Some of the sections for like logical reasoning have drills and problem sets that are like 15 or 20 different problem sets. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend like going through all of those or should we do like some and then kind of move on to the next? I actually wrote a blog post about this on the 7th Age blog about how to best utilize the core curriculum. But essentially what I say about that is, and yeah, you're right, like the flaw questions or the flaw class on the core curriculum has like over 20 problem sets. I would say you want to, and this is where it takes being a little self-honest with yourself. You want to ask yourself like, okay, am I comfortable enough? Do I know flaw questions enough to move on essentially? So like something that I tell sometimes my, my students that are still on the core curriculum is to just, just do every other three right now and kind of gauge if that's enough for you to move on and then save those other ones later for like, okay, maybe for some reason, this one section take that you took, you forgot how to do flaw questions. And then you can save those basically those other flaw questions for review later on to revisit and review. I would really treat them and just going to add on to that. I would treat those practice sets, almost like the review problems in a math textbook. So you you don't necessarily need to do all of them, but do enough of them that you feel comfortable with it and you feel like you get it. And then move on to the next thing. And then you can always go back and review those to practice with them if you get stuck or if it's been a while or you just find that, oh, well, I'm, this is my worst question type. I don't know what's going on. Let me go back, review the core curriculum and try some of these problem sets again. And I'm going to just link that blog post in the chat just if anyone else is, is on the core curriculum and wants to have some like a little bit of tips to go over that. So it's in the chat if y'all want to take a look at it as well. Yeah. And by the way, that comes out every week. If you haven't actually looked over it, I would encourage you to subscribe to it. Every single week, we have a tutor giving tips for students just like you. So uh, it's completely free content. So please feel free to, to jump in on that. Thank you so much for your question, Megan. Got two more. Daisha. 
Hi, this is Daishi. Thanks so much for taking my question. I think what was really helpful was hearing some suggestions on the skipping strategy. I don't think I've ever really created one for myself yet. So what I've heard was, if you see a long green tail, move on. Cross all five, move on. If you need to sense any diagramming, move on. I guess for all these flagging and skip and trying to come in back. Do you have any other instances where we should skip and come back? Yeah, I think the main underlying principle that should drive your decision making on logical reasoning is how can I get as many questions correct as possible? As opposed to, I think, what is usually in a student's mind is how can I get all of the questions correct? So although they sound similar, the decisions that a student will make, whether they're following one or the other, are extremely different. Like, for example, a student that's trying to get all of the questions correct might spend three minutes, four minutes on a five star question on the first round, whereas a student that's trying to get as many points correct as possible will have already kind of been able to develop the skill to identify that the question that they're spending time on is a really huge time sink after reading the stimulus and, and, and essentially just move on within 30 seconds or so. So the student that moved on, although they'll probably probably both get the question wrong, the student that is moving on essentially is essentially given three minutes and 30 seconds to resolve other questions that that other student does not have. Anything that you decide to do in your skipping strategy, it should be with that underlying principle of is the time that I'm spending worth it at this moment? Or like what I said previously, is what I'm doing right now trying to get as many points correct as possible? Yeah, something to just throw in there, because 90% accurate on the LSAT is enough for a 170 score. So I mean, 90% accurate it's fantastic. If you are 90% sure that you got a question right, you should not spend a single more second on that question. You should go on to the next one that you haven't even looked at yet. Yeah. Ironically, when I started implementing this skipping strategy of trying to get as many points correct as possible when I was studying myself, that's when my score like shot up actually. And that's when I actually started scoring minus zero sometimes. So yeah, I would definitely recommend asking yourself that question, Daichi, when you're trying to go through and figure out your test taking process. I would second that. Even last June when on the test that I ultimately got a 180 on, I was still skipping certain questions on LR. Now I was getting to them on round two, but being able to rearrange the test in an order that suits you is a really powerful thing. The test writers go to a lot of care to reorganize the test in a way that is beneficial to them, namely one that is going to cause you to make mistakes. You using skipping is a great way to reorganize the test in a way that is as optimal for, for you and for your style, and that will it will do wonders for improving your score. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. No problem. All right. Last question, Brian. So my question is quite similar to the last question because I also didn't have a skipping strategy. When you're going through and you're unsure about something, you want to flag it for blind review. This is a very practical question. Is there a way with the digital LSAT to flag something or do you just have to like take pen and paper and write down like, hey, I'm going to come back to this question. Like, how do I practically flag something that I've answered in a test to come back for, for blind review? The Law Hub interface actually does give you a an option to flag your question. But even then, I think something that I uh, sometimes advise my students to do is even classify your flags that you have flagged as well. I actually sometimes advise my students to have that scratch paper and kind of identify which flags did you flag that you should come back to first versus which flags did you flag that you probably shouldn't come back to because you think it's like a five star curve breaker question until the very end, essentially. I'll tell my students to kind of keep a column one and column two, column one being questions that I flag to that are kind of low hanging fruit that I will come back to first and column two kind of questions that are like super, super will take me a really long time that I'm not really confident in that I, I should be going back to at this moment. So yeah, does that answer your question, Brian? Yes, it does. Thank Great. you. Great. Awesome.
All right, guys, that's our last question for tonight. I will point out just a couple quick things. We also do free consults, sort of free three minutes consults. I do them. Chris does them. A number of our tutors do them. And I just put two links in the chat. This might be kind of one of those RIP my schedule for the next week. Uh, the first one I put in there is my personal one. Yes, that will let you schedule a 30 minute with me. So my schedule might fill up very quickly. The second one is a one that will let you schedule with a number of our different tutors. We just kind of combine our availability. But Chris is on that. A number of our other tutors on that. So if you just want to talk through this, you want someone to look at your analytics, you want to talk about whether tutoring or one of our live classes might be right for you. This is completely free. You can have 30 minutes of our time to to chat with us, ask us questions just one on one. So we, we try to make that available because we, we know how honestly just how alienating sometimes this whole process of studying for the LSAT can be. We've all been through that experience of just working so hard on this thing that no one in your personal life understands. Please we reach out to us. We'd be happy to talk with you. We're here not just for these webinars, but really for the community as a whole. So, And with that in mind, for those of you who are taking the June test just in a few weeks, know that you're in our thoughts. Please, we'll be out there on the forums. Feel free to send me and Chris questions and good luck here in just a few weeks. For those of you studying further out, good luck to you guys as well. Happy studying and have a wonderful night. Take care. Hey, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. And I hope you got some good advice that you can implement in your own studies. If you are thinking about working with a tutor, get in touch. We'll do a free consultation. You can reach us on sevensage.com. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.